So Napoleon, in the year 1812, the self-declared French emperor Napoleon led his Grande Armée with over half a million soldiers, at the time that was a huge amount, to invade the Russian Empire. And the French troops and their allies marched quickly across Russia at lightning speed, covering hundreds and hundreds of miles. Within four months, they reached Moscow. And as the French marched across Russia, Russian Jews, <laughs> millions of Russian Jews, debated which side should they support during the war. Now, Russian Jews had suffered in the Russian Empire for more than a century. At first, Jews did not really live in Russia. Until 1772, Jews lived in very large number in a kingdom called the Kingdom of Poland, which covered most of Eastern Europe, of what we know today as Eastern Europe. And Russia at the time was significantly smaller in the 1700s and um, did not allow Jews really to settle in Russia. And in 1772, Poland was conquered, at least parts of Poland, Ukraine, was conquered by Russia, Russia finding itself with large numbers of Jews. And over the next couple decades, Russia, together with the Austrians and the Prussians, essentially divided up what had been the Kingdom of Poland, leaving most of the Kingdom of Poland now under Russian control, and huge numbers of Jews were now found within the Russian Empire. The Russians put many, many restrictions on the Jews. They didn't allow them to leave the areas that were part of what had been the Kingdom of Poland. They were not allowed to leave those areas. It became known as the Pale of Settlement. They weren't allowed to settle in any large cities within those areas. In cities like Kiev was the largest city. They weren't allowed to live in the big cities. They could only live in the small towns. They were not allowed to go into a lot of businesses. They weren't allowed to attend universities. There were many, many limitations placed on Jews within the Russian Empire. And there were regular pogroms where Jews were attacked for no reason, um, often with the encouragement of the, Rus of the leadership, of the government. And so for many Jews... Napoleon, the French, symbolized emancipation, freedom from restrictions, from anti-Jewish laws. And so many Jews actively aided Napoleon and actively aided the French armies. Jews at the time, many, some at least, had business connections, were able to finance the French armies. Jews were literate. Many of them spoke both Russian and French could serve as translators, and many Jews aided the French in their belief that the French would bring freedom to Jews. But then there were many other Jews within the Russian Empire, led by Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, the first leader of Chabad, who believed that Napoleon was the embodiment of evil, and French conquest of Russia was the worst thing that can happen to the Jewish people. They believed that a French victory would not lead to emancipation of Jews, but to a forced assimilation and end Jewish life as we know it. And so these Jews, led by Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, the first Chabad Rebbe, worked very hard to aid the Russians, the ones that were persecuting them. They worked very hard to aid them, to support them financially, 
business-wise. They worked very hard to support them by serving as translators for the French, as translators for the Russians. They spoke, many Jews spoke both French and Russian, were better educated. And as serving as translators for the French and as spies spying on the French and reporting their moves to the Russians. What led to this great debate? So to really understand what this big debate among Russian Jews during this big war was about, we really have to go back to the story of Napoleon. Napoleon was a French soldier who rose to prominence during the French Revolution and after the French Revolution in 1792. The French overthrew the rule of, rose up, they overthrew the rule of King Louis and overthrew the French monarchy and created a French republic on the um, values of freedom and liberty and offered liberty to all within the, within the, what it, the new French Republic. Napoleon quickly rose through the ranks of the new French Republic until he became a general and was chosen to lead the battle against the Austrians. The, at the time, the French went through multiple wars. The French Republic went through multiple wars against the monarchies of Europe, who were very upset about the creation of the Republic. The various kings across Europe felt threatened by the new call to liberty coming out of France, and there were multiple wars in an attempt to restore the French monarchy. And so Napoleon led a war against the Austrians, and in that war he captured all of Italy, which had been under, much of it had been under Austrian rule. He um, led his armies to take over even the papal states, that were controlled by the Pope and forcing the Pope to retreat to the Vatican. And as he came, as he captured Italy, he brought French values of freedom and liberty to the Jews of Italy, opening up the ghetto gates, allowing most Jews in Italy lived in ghettos, allowing Jews to leave the ghettos. There were many rules, particularly in the Papal States, but throughout Italy, anti-Jewish laws, and granted the Jews of Italy freedom and equal rights. From Italy, Napoleon then led a French expedition to Egypt to capture Egypt from the British. Britain, of course, was France's biggest enemy at the time. Uh, They didn't have the ability, they didn't have the strength, they didn't believe they could invade Britain successfully, but they did want to to, um, choke off the British Empire's assets and resources, and particularly the British um, connection to India, And so, therefore, they went to capture Egypt. And they capture Egypt, and after capturing Egypt, Napoleon led his soldiers north into the land of Israel. He captures Jaffa. Jaffa goes up the coast, and he even gets as far as Haifa. And during his campaign, he calls for the creation of a Jewish homeland in the land of Israel. This is in 1799. He calls for the creation of a Jewish homeland in the land of Israel. But no Jews answered his call. They totally ignored him. The Jews believed that it was simply a political ploy. The Jews at the time were very powerful within the Ottoman Empire, 
And he was fighting the Ottoman Empire at the time, controlled the land of Israel. He was trying to capture the land of Israel from the Ottoman Empire. And uh, he was hoping to get the support of Jews in the Ottoman Empire, hoping they would switch sides and help him in his quest to capture the land of Israel. But Jews didn't really believe that he was serious. They didn't take him very seriously. Most Jews ignored him. He failed. His armies um, failed to capture Akko, and as a result, defended by um, the defense of Akko is actually led by Jews um, within Akko, and, um, and as a result, he was forced to retreat from the land of Israel and forced to retreat from Egypt as well. So upon his return to France in 1799, Napoleon came back to Paris, although he had just lost Egypt. He was still considered a great hero for his conquest of Italy. And Napoleon engineered what today we call a coup, where he had the military take over um, the failing republic that was, had multiple assassinations and coups um, over its short years until he came and so he effect, declared himself first consul, or effectively the ruler of France. He was the first one of those to engineer elections, to get himself elected with 99% of the vote, because it was still a republic, it was still a democratic republic. And three years later in 1802, he forced through a new constitution for France, declaring himself ruler of France for life. And two years later, in 1804, he declared himself emperor of France, turning France from a republic after just 12 years of, as a republic back into an empire. So he created a totalitarian state. There was no room for dissident. Any word against the new emperor, the new ruler, would be harshly punished. He brought in, um, as there had been previously and as there were elsewhere, um, strong censorship of what people said, what people published. Um, after a couple years of freedom in France, um, they went back to totalitarianism. And of course, he continued his empire-building campaigns, um, fighting um, other nations across Europe, and gradually, over the next couple years, conquering almost all of Europe. He conquered all the German states, um, all the, Austrian, the Austrian Empire. He reconquered Italy, which he had lost, but he reconquered it. And soon, within a decade of rule, just over a decade of rule, he controlled all of Europe, except for the Russian Empire and Great Britain. Now, while he was a totalitarian leader with no... Um, and imprisoned anyone who he felt was a threat, and there was no room for, dissid for dissident or even a word that, um, or even uh, any words against him. At the same time, he was also a very firm believer in many of the freedoms of the revolution. He believed in equality, one of the principles of the revolution. He believed in a classless society. Everyone should be equal. The Revo French Revolution had gotten rid of the aristocracy. There were no more aristocrats in France. They believed in no more... The, he got rid of aristocracy, um, and there were no more aristocrats and peasants, serfs. Everybody was equal. Everybody had equal rights. 
He believed in equality before the law. Everybody was equal before the law. He believed in freedom of religion and worship. Before the revolution, France had officially been a Catholic country, a very Catholic country. Non-Catholics were persecuted. Jews, of course, were persecuted, like they were across Europe. Um, there were many, many limitations on Jews. Jews had been granted freedom with the revolution, like Protestants in France. Um, they had a lot more um, laws, anti-Jewish laws, um, but they had been given freedom. He allowed anyone the freedom to practice and worship as they wished so long as they supported the state and supported him. In 1801, he made peace with the Catholic Church. He was the one that had captured the papal states from the Pope and essentially imprisoned the Pope in the Vatican. But he made peace with the new Pope. In an agreement, he basically forced on the Pope that the Pope would give control of the Catholic Church which the Pope essentially has absolute control over all bishops and the entire Catholic Church, belongs to the Vatican. He would give control of the Catholic Church to, and until then the Catholic Church had supported the Royalists, were anti-Republican. Um, but the, he agreed that the Pope, the Pope agreed to give control of the Catholic Church to the French government. From now on, all churches, all in France, belong not to the Pope, but to the French government. All bishops were not employees of the Vatican, but were now employees of the French government. And they had total control over the Catholic Church. Did they have a choice? In, no. In Napoleon's France, the government controlled everything, including religion. There was freedom of religion, as long as you could worship any way you wanted, as long as the religion that you worship was controlled by the French government. So by 1806, the government, French government controlled all recognized religions in France. They were all controlled and part of the French government. There was the Catholic Church, but controlled not by the Vatican, controlled by the French government. Lutheran Church, controlled by the French government. Calvinist Church, controlled by the French government. All recognized now, they had been persecuted prior to the a revolution now all recognized, but all belonging to and controlled by the French government. The only thing he did not yet control was Judaism and the Jewish community. So Napoleon was determined to make the Jews French as well and make the Jews subservient to the French government as well. I'm going to tell you about that in a moment. That's okay. Yes, Annette. But Judaism isn't, isn't structured like uh, other religions. It wasn't, but he was going to make... It wasn't structured like other religions. At least not... Neither is Protestants, Protestantism in the same way. It doesn't belong to one power. Which would make it but really difficult to force one... He was going to figure out how to do it. Now... In the 18th century, that's the 1700s, Enlightenment thinkers, of which there were many in France, in England, in the United States, what became the United States, in the Americas, there were many Enlightenment thinkers that called for this concept of freedom and equality. Everybody should be free. Everybody should be able to practice whatever religion they want. Everyone should be, uh, they called for democracy. 
So among these Enlightenment thinkers, and one of the keys of Enlightenment thinking was human rights. We had a Bill of Rights. The um, French had a Bill of the Rights of Man. And the, the concept that all humans are created equal, all people should be treated equally, everybody has rights. Now among Enlightenment thinkers, one of the big issues they discussed were the Jews. The Jews, of course, were a very significant population, not so much here in the, in the Americas, but in Europe. The Jews were a very, very significant population, um, in some places more than others, but Jews lived all across Europe and were a very noticeable minority. Now, almost all Enlightenment thinkers saw the Jews as being backwards, as being of bad character. The typical stereotype the anti-Semites had of the day of the Jews who were, who were dishonest, who would take advantage of non-Jews, take advantage of others, who were moneylenders because they were greedy. And they had this negative stereotype view of Jews. These, these were the Enlightenment thinkers. Right? These were the um, forward-thinking individuals. There was, however, a big debate in the mid-17th century among Enlightenment thinkers as to how to free the Jews from their negative character and make them productive citizens. Some saw Judaism, the Jewish religion, as a source of Jewish evil. And they believed that as long as Jews practiced Judaism, they would continue to believe in what they called Jewish supremacy, that Jews were better than everybody else and have the right to take advantage of non-Jews. And Jews would continue to stay separate from non-Jews and would always be a strain, a stain on society, will always be a problem for society. And therefore, this school of enlightenment believed that the only solution for the Jews was to help them as they, they're human beings. They should be treated like all humans. And so they should be given equal rights, but we need to help them assimilate and become Christian. If we help them assimilate and become Christian, lose their Jewish identity, then we can get rid of all the negative Jewish traits that they have and make them productive citizens of our countries. Other Enlightenment thinkers disagreed. They believed that there was nothing wrong with Judaism on its own. Judaism, after all, was the source of Christianity. Judaism was a pure religion. The problem of the Jews, the reason why they were, in their view, um, backwards and um, greedy and um, take advantage of their non-Jewish neighbors, the problem with the Jews was the result of generations of persecutions. If they would just emancipate the Jews, make them equal citizens, then they would shed their old ways and become productive citizens. Now, of course, we recognize today that these anti-Semitic stereotypes were so ingrained in the thinking of these forward-thinking individuals, the people who were the fathers of our modern Western values, um, that even the most benevolent among them still were filled with anti-Semitic stereotypes and anti-Semitic views. Now, in France, too, there was this debate where the Jews should be forced away from Judaism, or we could leave Judaism as, or either force them away from Judaism or create perhaps a version of Judaism that was Christian-like, 
It was a, a view that you don't have to make them Christian, but we can make a Christian-like reform Judaism to create a Christ, make it Christian-like, that it's no different from Christianity and they'll be productive citizens. Or leave them as Jews, just emancipate them, um, but Judaism itself is able to... Um, but Judaism itself is okay so long as we emancipate them and then they'll get rid of their Jewish, their bad Jewish ways, what they believed was bad Jewish ways. So Napoleon decided to leave it up to the Jews themselves to decide the answer on this question. But he also wanted to control the Jews and to have the Jews, um, force the Jews to emancipate themselves or to change themselves. And so, in 1806, Napoleon called a congress of Jewish representatives from across France. He chose their representatives, of course, based on his local um, officials, had them choose representatives who they thought were sufficiently French and forward-thinking, and had them ask, ask them 12 questions about Judaism that he wanted this Congress of Jews to answer. He asked them questions that showed his ignorance, or the people who perhaps were helping him, their ignorance of Judaism, like can Jews have more than one wife? Uh, but then he asked them questions that were, the answer of course isn't it. <laughs> then he asked them questions that were really about the Jewish role, the role of Jews in, among, among the French, in relation to the French. He asked them, do Jews believe in divorce? Right, Because the Catholics, of course, don't. Um, and would they respect civil divorce of the French government? Would they need a religious divorce? He asked them, can a Jew marry a French? Non-Jew. A French non-Jew. He asked them, do Jews can... Sorry? This is Napoleon asking. These are the questions that the Congress needs to answer. Now remember, it's a totalitarian state under Napoleon. So if you answer the wrong answer, you get into big trouble. Do Jews consider themselves one nation with the French or are they a separate nation? Now, of course, you know the answers that he's expecting to all these questions. How do Jews believe they should treat non-Jews? Treat non-Jews. How should Jews treat non-Jews? He asked them, do Jews feel themselves loyal Frenchmen? Would they fight for France? These are some of the questions that he asked them. Big questions. So the goal was to get the Jews and the Jewish Congress to become responsible, equal citizens of France and force them to become French. However, so the Congress formulated their answers to the questions, formulated them in a way that Napoleon wanted. But he, simply, he quickly realized as the Congress was in session that having a handful of lay, hand-picked laymen picked by the French government making decisions on behalf of the French community is not very effective because why would the Jews pay attention to them? Why would the Jews listen to them? And so therefore his advisors told him he needs to do something better than that. Something that would be more effective. 
They told him, in fact, the Congress themselves responded. One of his questions were, how did Jews make new laws, new rules? If you want to change Judaism, reform Judaism, how would you go about doing it? And the answer he was given was that we don't have the right to reform Judaism. We once upon a time had a Sanhedrin, a supreme council of Judaism. For our first 1,700 years of Judaism, there was this supreme council that they had the right to make rules in Judaism as necessary. However, once the Supreme Council was disbanded, there is no central body of Judaism that can make rules that are binding on all Jews. So for Napoleon, that was no problem. After all, he considered himself a continuation of the Roman Empire. He was a continuation of the empires of old. And therefore, he declared that he was going to recreate the Sanhedrin. He was going to call a Sanhedrin, representatives from all the different Jewish communities in France, in Italy, and other lands that Napoleon controlled. He would get prominent rabbis to join. It would be made up two-thirds rabbis and one-third laypeople partly chosen by the French government, so that they have people there that they like and that they know will follow what they want. Of course, that's the way the totalitarians work. You've got to always make sure your people are inside to manage things. And then, partially chosen by the Jewish communities. And so he puts this Sanhedrin, they put these big announcements in newspapers all around France and across Europe that they were reconstituting a Sanhedrin, which Napoleon believed, in his arrogance, would be the Absolute, have absolute authority over all Jews worldwide. And so they bring together this Sanhedrin, had some prominent rabbis, some minor rabbis, a bunch of lay people, some of who were not very actively Jewish, but had become somewhat, some assimilated lay people, this Sanhedrin. And they chose one of the most prominent French rabbis of the day, Rabbi David Zitzheimer, was one of the most prominent French rabbis of the day, and they made him the president of their new Sanhedrin. And then the Sanhedrin was given the same 12 questions that Napoleon had asked, and they were to answer these 12 questions, compose answers for each of these questions. Now, it was a little challenging, because here the Sanhedrin was mostly led by rabbis, who were loyal to Judaism and to Jewish law, to halacha. But some of the questions that Napoleon had asked, he was expecting answers that were not in accordance with Jewish law. What do you do? Well, they had to, they couldn't, they were rabbis, they weren't going to break Jewish law. But then on the other hand, they couldn't, go against Napoleon's wishes, they would be arrested, possibly killed for that. So they used a little Jewish ingenuity, as we always like to do, and as we've learned over the years, and they used some formulated the answers to try to walk the tightrope, made them very vague, purposely, and answered questions without violating Judaism and without offending the emperor. Without doubt, the biggest issue was, can a Jew marry a Frenchman? 
Can a Jew marry a Frenchman? What do you answer? We know what Napoleon's answer, what Napoleon's expected answer is. Say yes, because they were Jewish. But we know what Jewish law says. So they answered as follows. If a Jew marries a Frenchman, the Jewish community would not excommunicate them for doing so. So, after the Sanhedrin, Napoleon then created a Jewish Congress, or essentially a Jewish government, as he had created for the other churches, that was answerable to the French government, employed by, essentially employed by the French government, and created a government-endorsed Jewish religion controlled by the French government, the rabbis of the community, and the kahal, the kahila, the communities themselves, they still had organized communities in France, were all controlled by the French government. And by the way, that's all still true today. Till today, France still has that. Where the Catholic Church, everywhere else is controlled by the Vatican, in France it's controlled still till today by the French government. And the same is for all the other religions. So did the government pay the rabbis? That's an interesting thing. Originally, they actually didn't. They paid everybody else but the rabbis. But the rabbis, the community had to raise their own money to pay. They paid the priests, but they, the bishops, but they wouldn't pay the rabbis. Yes. A later, at a later period, the French actually did start paying the rabbis. Today, rabbis in France are paid by the government. So the Jews in France had ne- were now emancipated. They had been actually emancipated early on. Um, in, originally, the Jews of France lived with many limitations. Um, Jews mostly lived both in um, eastern France, in an area called Alsace or, and Lorraine, which are kind of border between Germany and France and went back and forth between the two. And... Um, and so the, and the Jews lived in, so Jews lived there because they had lived under German rule for many years. And Jews also lived in southern France in an area that had once been part of Italy, or parts of Italy um, in southern France. Um, th- that's where the main Jewish communities were. Um, but the Jews were, um, had, had been living in southern France in ghettos, as they did in Italy. Um, and they had, there were many limitations on them. Um, and Jews, because they had limited, they weren't allowed to, they weren't in, in France, until then, they had not been allowed to do most um, arts and work, and they hadn't been allowed to own farms, to own land. There were many limitations. So most Jews were either peddlers, traders, um, or bankers, money lenders. They would lend money, payday lenders. And so um, this upset, of course, many peasants, French peasants, who didn't like the Jews because they were indebted to Jews. They would borrow money, these payday loans, and um, they owed money to Jews as a result. And so Napoleon made laws banning Jewish money lending. And he went further to forgive all money, all loans owed to Jews were automatically forgiven, making the Jews lose all their money. But yet at the same time, this is all part of his goal to forcibly emancipate Jews. And yet at the, at the same time, he granted Jews freedom to enter any profession they, profession they wished. They could enter the military now for the first time. In fact, they were drafted for the military. Napoleon instituted a draft. They could even hold government jobs. For the first time, they had freedom, but they were also limited in certain other things. They were also limited in where they could move to for a time. They couldn't move wherever they wanted. They were afraid of too many backwards Jews coming to Paris or to other major cities. Um, 
And so he did put, he gave Jews both freedoms and limitations. And the French state, of course, controlled Jews and Judaism. And what Jews did, the Kahil, the communion, was now controlled by the French state. So, to, in summary, Napoleon granted Jews emancipation and freedom for the first time in France in close to 2,000 years. But freedom came at a price. They would have to give us their distinctiveness, give up their distinctiveness of Judaism and things that made them different from everybody else. They would have to dress and act like Frenchmen. They would have to learn to speak French. They would have to, in many ways, be like the Frenchmen. They wouldn't be able to be distinct. And the hope was they would either gradually assimilate or they would create a newer version of Judaism that is not different from Christianity. They were disturbed by Jews not being allowed to eat food with everybody else. That we take off so many holidays every Shabbat, we don't work. So these were things that made us different. They were very disturbed. The French were trying to, were very disturbed by that. They wanted to control Judaism and make it, reform it and change it to make it more French-like, more Christian-like, so that Jews are not, no different than their French brethren. And so as Napoleon, over about a decade, conquered most of Europe within the next decade, conquering Austria, Prussia, the two main kingdoms in Europe at that time, and all the many small German states, um, as he conquered all these various places, Spain, Spain didn't really have Jews, but he's conquered all these other places with Jews, he spread his Jewish policies across all of Europe, emancipating Jews in Westphalia, which was a country he created of West Germany, which... Um, in Western Germany, um, at the same time creating a congress of Jews that would be answerable to the government that was answerable to him. Um, he brought down ghetto walls across Germany because many Jews lived in ghettos but, and granted Jews emancipation. They had freedom, but they created Jewish congresses everywhere to, with the role of evolving Judaism to better fit with French revolutionary values. So it was this paradox that the Jews of Russia grappled with during the invasion of 1812. When Napoleon turned his sights on Russia, which had the largest Jewish community in the world at the time, millions of Jews lived in Russia. Jews grappled with this. Russian Jews suffered more than Jews anywhere else in Europe at this time. They were under more restrictive rules and more restrictive laws than anyone else. And they, many Jews saw Napoleon as their savior, the man who's going to give Jews rights, freedom, get rid of the pale of settlement. They'll be able to live wherever they want. They'll be able to own land. They'll be able to go into any profession they want. Go to universities. Get government jobs. Go to the, go to the military. It will give them freedoms that they never had. Get rid of the pogroms. Give, make Jews equal citizens. But then many other Jews saw a problem. <clears throat> they saw Napoleon as a great danger. People like the first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, who we mentioned earlier, they saw Napoleon's version of freedom as a great danger to Judaism and the Jewish future. He would forcibly reform Judaism and change Judaism as we know. And for that reason, Russian Jews had this big debate among them, which side to support. Russian rabbis and leaders um, Many Russian leaders, Rabbi Yisrael of Apta, known as the Apta Rav, 
uh, was a big supporter of Napoleon. There were others, many were big supporters of Napoleon, hoping for the freedoms that Napoleon was going to bring, while many Jews were greatly fearful of the forced reform, reformation of religion that Napoleon will bring as well. The Alter Rebbe himself, the first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman, was forced to flee from his town, Liadi. It was along the route of Napoleon's army with his family because he was one of the most prominent Jews. Against Napoleon, he knew that Napoleon would treat him, would punish him for that, for speaking out openly against him and encouraging Jews to work against him. And so he was forced to flee and he actually died a few months later while he was on the run. But his wish was fulfilled, and Napoleon was defeated. Napoleon succeeded in conquering Moscow, but then his army um, fell apart due to bad supply lines and the um, Russian winter. Um, he wasn't able to continue, and they ended up retreating, and he ended up retreating and losing his entire Grand Armée of 500,000 soldiers. After Napoleon's defeat, the Jews of Russia went back to Tsarist persecution. But Judaism, at least, continued to thrive. And Russia remained the largest Jewish community in the world for more than 100 years until Jews started moving en masse to the United States and to other countries. Most Jews in Europe were sent back into the deco for decades after Napoleon's defeat. Eventually, Napoleon lost all of Europe. And in 1815, he was removed from office. And after Napoleon's defeat, Jews in most of Europe went back into their ghettos. And yet Judaism survived because the forced reformation was gone. In France, in Prussia, some other Jewish German, some other German states, they kept Napoleon's reforms. Even once Napoleon was gone, many of his reforms were kept. And these places saw Jews retain their freedom but saw at the same time a very quick decline of Judaism. Because Judaism, as a distinctive religion, was frowned upon in these places. And so most Jews as a result in France and in places that retained those freedoms and retained those values, um, accept the demand that they no longer remain distinct as a price to pay for their freedoms. And as a result, the Jews in these places very, over the 19th century, very quickly assimilated. So, yes, Nui. So we, we can say that uh, the Russian Jews were the strongest community of Judaism keep Judaism as is and They were the largest group of Jews. Most places reverted back to the persecution of Jews. But at the same time, the government not mixing in with Judaism. Most places reverted back. It wasn't just Russia. Most places did. So while the French were, French were, being, were emancipating Jews across Europe, and while the French were bringing the freedoms, or at least equality, it wasn't really freedom, it was a totalitarian regime, totalitarian regime but they were bringing freedoms, uh, equality across Europe. Here, in the newly formed United States, which we created um, just two decades before the French Revolution. In the United States, Jews were given freedom as well. However, here also, Jews were given total freedom, 
freedom of religion, given equal citizenship and equal rights to everybody else. However, unlike the French, the government here in the United States was entirely removed from religion and religious life. In fact, we enshrined in our constitution that the government will mix out of religion. Now the truth is at that time, in the 1700s, there were much fewer Jews in this country. And so it didn't really, there weren't that many Jews, there were, wasn't really much of a Jewish community. But some hundred years later, in the late 1800s, Jews started moving to the United States in great numbers. And as we did, we had the freedom over here to build Judaism and Jewish communities without persecution or government interference. Judaism built in this country and became a recognized and noticeable religion. And Jews over here have the freedom to be distinctively Jewish, to be different, to keep Shabbat, to keep kosher, say, I won't eat in your home. I won't eat lunch with you because I eat different food, unless you go, come with me to a kosher restaurant. We don't work on Shabbos. And we had the right to say that. And we're, here in the United States, we'd be given the freedom without the attempt to reform us and to change us. We don't have the, we don't have the compromise that we would have had to have in France that the French were given. And we recognize that here in the United States we were given the ability to both be free and to practice Judaism as we wish. And yet every once in a while there are calls for Jews to change their ways, to stop being different, to be just like everybody else. Often those calls are actually from fellow Jews who are uncomfortable with Judaism. And they don't like the way you look. They say, you know, I don't think you should walk around looking like that. It's going to make the anti-Semites not like us. I don't think you should look like that. I don't think you should behave like that. I don't think you should refuse to eat with your non-Jewish neighbors or have big visible synagogues or big visible Hanukkah celebrations. Right? Sometimes people are concerned about being distinctively or visibly Jewish. We're lucky. We live in a free country that gives us the freedom to be as Jewish as we like and live our religion however we want. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. No one controls us. And then every once in a while we also hear people that call for more government oversight over what Jews are doing. And we need to be very careful, sometimes other religions. We need to be very, very careful because for us, any government oversight over Judaism is danger. We don't want to see any government oversight. And every once in a while you hear those cry, calls for government oversight. In recent years, there's been a calls for government oversight, for example, over milah, ritual circumcision. You know, our mohels are not certified by the, there's no government agency that certifies mohels. They're not certified doctors. And there's been a call to have our mohels certified. There was actually, they even tried passing such a law in New York at one point couple years ago. That's very dangerous. Our Moas, by the way, are very good. Everyone that I've ever known is excellent. But and they do have, the, the, you can't get certified by the Israeli rabbinate. So that's a Jewish control some, thing. Some are, some are actually physicians. Or some are physicians, or but many of them are not. And nor have they been historically. Yeah. And from the Moas that I know, and I have some family who are Moas, I'll say the ones that are physicians don't usually make very good Moas. But regardless, we don't want any government control. 
over Judaism. Sounds innocent. They'll just make sure that they know what they're doing. Just have a government bureaucrat make sure they know what they're doing. Any, any government control on Judaism is dangerous. Any government control over religion is a dangerous thing. The same is another thing that has happened mostly on the East Coast, not here yet, thankfully. There's been a movement for government to control Jewish schools. You know, Jews have private schools where we teach our children Judaism along with other subjects. But Jews aren't, so people claim that Jews, and this, this actually the claim is coming from Jews often, the Jewish kids are not getting a good education in the Jewish schools. We need more government oversight. The Department of Education should have more oversight over what's going on in the Jewish schools. Just to improve the quality of the education in the Jewish schools. That's all they're going to do. They're just going to improve the quality of their education. Sounds very innocent. Sounds very good. But any government control is counterproductive. They're going to start telling us what to teach. We're only telling them how to teach math and science. But they're going to tell us what to teach in the Jewish schools, and they're going to start telling us, you need to cut down on your religious teaching, put another hour here, put another hour. They're going to tell us everything that we can and can't do. So it's important to remember the dangers of Napoleon. While Napoleon granted us freedom, he made us compromise. That he granted us freedom on, control, on condition that he controlled Judaism. On condition that Judaism was not distinctive. And we have to be very careful. We are very lucky in this country to live in a free country where we can, we have freedom, we have, we're equal citizens, and we have freedom to practice our religion. Nobody tells us what to do. And we can be distinctive and should be distinctive because if we're not distinctive as Jews, we will assimilate. And we don't want any government control whatsoever over Judaism or over religion. Even if it sounds innocent, even if it sounds like they're just trying to improve the quality, just better quality control, any government control over religious things is always dangerous. So that's our lesson from Napoleon. That was the power of Napoleon, his relationship with the Jews.